Here we are, the first Sunday of 2004. And the question for today is, where will you be in 2004? And the answer I hope that all of us will find in our life, not just in, verb, uh, in words, verbally, but in our lives, I hope we can say, we will be under the banner of our Lord. That's where we'll march. That's where we'll fight. That's where we'll die, under the banner of our Lord. We have a calendar. They will be in the songbook racks, and also you'll find some in the foyer. These are the dates that we know that are being planned right now for 2004. You can pick that calendar up. Of course, it's probably very easy to notice that those calendars are scored, and so you can fold it into a trifold if you choose to do so. Also, uh, please use the calendar to go ahead and mark in your personal calendar uh, dates that pertain to your family. Uh, every year it happens, and it's because we're humans. We make mistakes and we forget, but this is just a friendly reminder. Every year someone says, we accidentally scheduled our family vacation during fa vacation Bible school. Now's the time to mark it on your personal calendar. Use this. Mark the dates that pertain to your family on your calendar. That's why we put this out at the first of the year, so that the things that are important to you, uh, you can get those as top priority in your life. And you can work everything else that is of a lesser priority around those things that are a top priority. So use the calendar to your advantage spiritually. The second thing that we have this year, and we will not put uh, as great of emphasis on this as an entire congregation this year, but nevertheless, there have been several comments of appreciation for the taste uh, that we did this past year where we studied through the New Testament in a year. And so what we did was uh, design a simple... Uh, single-fold brochure that has the schedule for 2004 if you want to read and study Monday through Friday, one chapter a day through the New Testament and make notes. On the front of the brochure gives an example of how to fill out a spec and then on the inside and on the back is the schedule. These are as you exit the foyer. There is um, a stack of these on the table at this end and then in this little podium that is out here on the creek side of the fo foyer. They are stacked in a single form, uh, an unfolded form. Uh, don't look for them folded. There'll be a flat stack uh, on each end of the foyer. Be sure and pick those up. If you do not already have a design in your personal study each day, uh, this is a wonderful uh, plan to make sure that you study and get the most out of God's Word. If we fail in learning God's Word, ultimately we will fail in everything. I hope 2003 has been a good year for you. Needless to say, because we're humans and we have ups and downs, there would be some in this auditorium that can honestly say, you know, 2003 has been a pretty hard year for me for various reasons. What I want to encourage all of us to do, no matter if we think things are going wonderful in our personal life right now or if we're struggling in our life right now, Will you agree this morning to make 2004 the year that you live closer to God than you ever have in the past? That's the idea that we want to convey as we study a touching story that has been so capably read for us out of Exodus, the 17th chapter. When we think about the Lord is our banner. Now that's at the end of the story. And we study some wonderful things that lead to that. And so what I'd like to do just by introduction is to lay just a little groundwork to say, well, what is a banner? 
We're very familiar with banners throughout our history because there have been some banners lifted that, as a matter of fact, they've been some of the most memorable banners and they've been captured on film, they've been captured in pictures. They're banners that have lived on. Many of us remember, at least some of you would remember, others would remember through history, Imajima. Iwo Jima. That's it. It's a difficult time in American history. Japan was willing to risk everything to maintain their 5,000-year reign of that island. America was willing to risk everything for that island. It was only 650 miles from Tokyo. We had bombers that could stretch the distance without that island, but we did not have any protective planes that could fly around the bombers to bring them back home safely. We were losing men, and we could not win the battle unless we could have an island somewhere midstream for the smaller planes to refuel and for the crippled planes to arrive back to emergency point. Once that island was conquered, 29,000 men came in on limping planes. It proved to be the valuable asset that we thought that it would be. But the problem was so much had to be risked on both sides for that island. As a matter of fact, one of the Japanese generals wrote home to his wife just before this battle and said, don't expect me to come home. Japan had an idea that was this. We don't expect to have any survivors from this battle. They went in and built 16 miles of tunnels in a seven and a half mile long island. They built 1,500 rooms in which for their men not only to dwell, but to fight. The concept was a Japan soldier would never be seen alive. They would fight from underground, making the task for the Marine soldiers of America most difficult because of the volcanic ash. Our Marine soldiers could not come onto the shores and dig a foxhole. It was impossible to dig. And if you'll notice in the history books, when you flip through the pages, you always see our Marines lying on top of the ground, being attacked by individuals that they could not even see. And so it was, it's considered one of the hardest battles the Marines have ever fought. Over 800 boats were sent in. Thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers were sent in. At one time, this small island had the heaviest population of any seven miles in the world. And the population was in great conflict. The battle continued. And one day, one small portion of a battle was counted as success. It was the easy company, is what they called themselves. They marched 250 men of their company into this island and only 27 of them walked off of the island. Seven officers left their boats to go onto this island and only one officer returned to his boat. But these men were willing to march under a banner. They were willing to march under the American flag. It represented who they were. It represented their citizenship. It represented what they believed was a valiant force. They were not a part of a cause about themselves. They were a part of a cause that was much greater than themselves. And so when they finally had that battle today, a photographer stood off at a distance and he watched six men lift a pole that weighed over 100 pounds with a flag on the end. 
It's obvious from the photograph that it was a struggle to lift this flag. But finally they lift the flag and they placed it in the rocky ground. And that flag is the most reproduced photograph that has ever been. Because it's important to us to recognize what banner means the most to us. Under what banner will you march? Under what banner will you give your life? That wasn't enough. We came back to America and we built the largest bronze statue in the world. And that's what it was molded into. Three of those men left that mountain, but they didn't leave that island alive. The three that did come back, one, it said, was never able to deal with life after the conflict. At 32, he died face down, drunk. Two, they were honored as the heroes of that island. One would never give an interview. He lived into the 90s never would give an interview. But he spoke through his son that wrote a book just a few years ago. And he told his son, the heroes are not the ones that came home. They are the ones, capital D-I-D, did not come home. One was honored by the president of that time, and he told reporters after he left the White House that very same thing. I'm not the hero. The heroes are the thousands of men that we left behind. Friends, today, if you and I can just get out of ourselves enough to glance into the reality that we need to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, when we live this life on our earth for ourselves, we've wasted a life. And our soul can never go to the abode of which it was created. But if we can realize that there's something greater than us, that there's a cause worth living for and a cause worth dying for, there's even a cause that's greater than America or any country that's ever been, there is, there will be. It's the cause of Jesus Christ as He was lifted on the cross, high and lifted up. He is the banner. The Lord is our banner. That's a cause that gives us a valent force. That's a cause that gives us a guide. That's a cause that points to heaven. That's a cause that we ought to be able to risk everything for. But by way of introduction, let's note just a second banner that's been lifted up. Most of us will remember very well, far too well, 9-11 of 2001. Do you remember what was discovered on 9-13 of 2001? His name was Frank, and he was rummaging around building six of the Twin Towers complex, hunting for survivors when he came across a cross. That cross was dug out of the rubble. The men there took a crane and they lifted it up. Our group that went and painted on Long Island this past week for the Timothy Hill Children's Ranch on Friday went to Manhattan. That cross is still standing at ground zero. When it was erected, the flag was draped on it. The idea was we're in conflict, we're in battle, and the American flag is our banner as a nation, and that God and the cross 
representing God, the Lord, is our banner as mankind. As Frank found that cross in the rubble, he sobbed for 20 minutes. Rescuers came around to see what was wrong. After they lifted it, prayer meetings were held there regularly. A reminder, a reminder that God ought to be a part of our lives. Friends, we just had so capably read for us a wonderful story. It's a challenging story. It's a story with a good ending, but it's a story with an ending that God said, I want this story to be told on and on. If you'll notice there in Exodus, the 17th chapter, and verse 14, He told Moses, write this for memorial. In other words, God says, I want this to be in the minds of the people, and I want it to be read and told and read and told over and over and over. God, what is it that you want to be written so that we can have it for a memorial? He says, I want you to write what happened when the children of Israel first came out of Egypt. Friends, this is the very beginning. They aren't warriors at this time. They're people that have been suppressed. They're people that in many ways have already showed signs of being complainers and cowards. And now they cross over the Red Sea and they have already murmured about the enemy. They've murmured that being Pharaoh. They've murmured about water. They've murmured about food. And now they're under attack. As we think about these people lifting the Lord as their banner, we see that the Amalek and his soldiers... They were desert men. They were trained. They were bold. They were courageous. They were ready to fight. But on the other hand, we see the Christian soldiers or God's soldiers in that day. We see Israel. And if we want to think about their physical fighting ability, Israel was raw. They were undisciplined. They had shown no courage up to this point. As a matter of fact, they had shown that they would be anything but courageous warriors. And then we see the battle. The battle that was before them was described very well in Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter. If Hold your finger here in Exodus. We'll come back to it. But if you want to go over to Deuteronomy 25, we've jumped down several years now, and God wants to remind Israel of something. You remember that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And before they went over to take Canaan's land, God wanted to remind Israel about what happened that very first encounter that they had of fighting. The battle in which they went into for the first time. And this is how he describes it in Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. He says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. The battleground was the point in time that they were coming out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, the story that we're studying this morning took place before they even received the Ten Commandments. This happened probably within the first 40 days. 
They were coming out and they were on their way. Notice that phrase, on their way. That points to the fact that they were pilgrims. They weren't in their home. But also it points to the fact that they weren't ready for battle. In other words, he didn't come up and say, in three days we're going to attack you. They were on your, their way and they were attacked. Think about this spiritually. What is our home? Is earth your home? A lot of people make that their home. And me and you, you and I, we need to answer honestly this morning. Is earth my home? Have I made this my home? If so, Satan has already attacked me and Satan has already won. But if I can honestly say, no, I'm just a pilgrim here passing through. Heaven is my citizenship. The Lord is my banner. I will march with the Lord. I'll live with the Lord. I'll die with the Lord. Heaven is my citizenship. Notice also in this that it was the stragglers, it was the weak ones. See, Amalek was ruthless. He didn't come into this group of people of probably several hundreds of thousands and fight them head on. He waited and came into the rear and he attacked those that were not strong enough to defend themselves. Right now, if we stood up this group of around 600 people and we said, we are going to walk to Lebanon Road, just a mile or two down the road. Can you picture in your mind how that walk would go? Who would arrive first? Even if we didn't say, we didn't say it's a race. We just said we're going to walk together. Who would arrive first? Who would arrive last? If you've ever walked with a large group of people, it's obvious the answer is. I hate to continually go back to things that you learn in the country, but if you've ever driven large numbers of cattle or sheep, the answer is obvious. I used to sit on the front porch with my grandfather Shannon, and he would tell about driving herds of thousands of sheep 40 miles to be sold. They would take each man and give each man ten, give each man a hundred sheep. He would leave. They would corral a hundred more sheep and he would go behind him and they would continue to do this so that they would have miles strung out of sheep. And then he laughed and he said, if you're driving a thousand, you never want to be the tenth man. I was young. I didn't understand that. I said, Paul, Paul, why don't you want to be the tenth man? He said when man number one is driving his sheep and he has one that's hard to drive, he'll let it drop back to man number two and he'll keep going. He said when you get one that's old and slow and just can't keep up with the pace, number two will let it drop back to number three and he'll keep going. He said number ten starts out with a hundred, but when he arrives at the destination, he has much closer to two hundred and they're the slow ones and it's worked him to death just trying to keep them going. Friends, can you imagine Moses leading hundreds of thousands of people? Who was at the front and who was at the back? Amalek tells us, he says, I'm implying this, he, he, uh, or it implies this, he says, I looked over the hill and I just watched them march by. I could see the strong ones out front, I just waited. I went to the rear, the ones that were tired, the ones that were feeble, and I attacked them from the back. God doesn't give cheap victories. If you want to be a part of God's army, we have to get serious. 
We have 600 folks. What are you and I willing to do to help the ones that are weak? The ones that are struggling spiritually? You want to leave them out on the fringes by themselves so the enemy can attack very easily? Or will the spiritually strong obey Galatians 6 and 1 to go out and restore the brother and bring them back so they'll, they'll march directly under the banner of the Lord? But now let's look at this army of Israel as a whole unit, one unit, and ask this question. Here's one unit. Where did the enemy attack this one unit? It's weak side. You're one unit. Where is Satan going to attack you? It's obvious he's going to attack you in your weak side. This morning, if you in your mind are going to make a list of three areas, three individual, or three very specific things, and you say, these are the weaknesses in my life right now, one, two, and three, what are they? Go through that real quick in your mind. Say, I struggle with this, I struggle with this, and I struggle with this. Now, not that I'm a prophet, can predict the future or even your heart, but friends, I think I can safely say this. If you've been honest with yourself and you really say, these are my top three weaknesses, I can tell you where Satan's going to work. He's going to approach you on your weak side. Someone says, well, my weaknesses work. I'm around peers that aren't Christians and I tend to act more like them than I do God. He's going to keep working on you there. We have to decide which banner are we going to march under. Are we going to march under Satan's banner? Are we going to march under the Lord's banner? If we march under the Lord's banner, He will give us the strength to conquer that. If we don't march under the Lord's banner, we shall be defeated. Someone says, my weakness is my family. I just lose my temper. I, I lose priorities. I do things that causes trust to, to be destroyed in my family. My weakness is my family. Satan will continue to work there. Someone says, my weakness is, is priorities. I tend to just continually put money above things that ought to be much more important than that in my life than that. Or I continue to put entertainment too high. What is it? We're in a real battle. You know, when we enter Manhattan, there's still soldiers standing with rifles at the tunnels. You know, to... Someone from Nashville, that's a little bit of a wake-up call that says, this thing with 9-11 is not over. Somebody thinks we're still in a real battle. Do you believe that Satan is really out there? Do you believe that Satan really wants to destroy you? Do you believe that more than anything, Satan wants to pull your spouse down and your children down? Do you really believe that you have a neighbor on each side of you that Satan wants to win? We're not going to see a man in a red suit and horns. And he's not going to walk up to the front of us, to our strong side, and shake hands with us and say, I'm your enemy today. He's going to come around to this weak side. That doesn't mean that he's not present. That he's not there. But do you notice the battle? As we go back to Exodus, the 17th chapter, we see that it was really the Lord's battle. But the Lord always uses human instruments 
He gathered together there Moses so that Moses could gather together Joshua. Oh, you've heard about him a lot in the Scriptures, have you? This is the first time. If you're reading from the beginning of the Bible, you haven't heard about him. Out of all these people that apparently were not warriors, many of them were not courageous, Moses looked about and he found a man that was a brave, courageous man that could, could become a leader among soldiers. Moses is too old to lead men into battle. Moses is over 80 years of age. His brother Aaron, no doubt, was too old. Who was Ur? We're not for sure. Ur might have been the husband of Miriam. And if so, he too was too old to lead men into battle. Who are we going to find? We're going to find the, the man that's courageous but young and strong. Tell him to handpick soldiers and, and go into battle. And while you're doing that, jo Joshua, I just want you to know, the three of us are going to go to the mountaintop and we're going to watch. And the truth is that we're going to make intercession on behalf of those soldiers. We're going to go with that rod. That rod is sometimes called the flagless banner for the children of Israel. It was that rod that seemed to be a part of most of the victories of the children of Israel. It was the rod that stood before Pharaoh, let my people go. It was the rod that stood there before the waters as they parted. And even their very first battle as the children of Israel were victorious, it was because there was a rod of Moses lifted above the people. But you know what? What do you think would happen if we brought Brother Marshall Wilhite up here? He's just a few years older than Moses was. And we gave him a big, heavy staff. We said, Brother Marshall, we want you to hold your hands up with this rod in your hands all day. Now let's be fair to Brother Marshall. What would happen if you were asked to come up here and hold a rod up all day? You know, if you're on a painting crew, the worst painters paint the ceiling. I painted ceilings this week. I know about holding your hands up all day. It's hard. It's almost impossible to hold your hands up without sometimes giving them a break. Well, in the text, in our story this morning, what, what happens when his hands come down? His hands come down and, and Amalek and his army begins to prevail over Israel. But Moses puts his hands back up to make intercession to God for these people and then the children of Israel begin to prevail. And can you imagine, over here is Aaron and Aaron, and they're watching this. It must have been amazing. But they're also watching that Moses can't do it all himself. How's that make you feel? You can't do it all yourself. You want to take your family to heaven? You can't do it all yourself. You want to help the Mount Juliet Church of Christ grow for the glory of God? You can't do it all yourself. You want to live a faithful Christian life yourself? You can't do it all yourself. We were not saved to walk this way alone. If you look over to your left and to your right, you're going to see brothers and sisters in Christ that God placed us into a community of believers to help each other, to serve each other. And if I've got some kind of concept in mind that I'm going to do this with myself, I am fooling myself. We need God. And we need each other.
I don't know which one of it, which one of them thought of it first. But you know, I like to visualize it in my mind. I like to just think of either Aaron or, or one of them just smiling real big. You know, do I have an idea? They roll that big rock up there and say, Moses, sit down right here. You see, they're thinking out for their own selves. They don't want to hold their hands up all day either. Sit down. Let's get you a little bit lower. Let us stand beside you. Three of us can hold your hands up. Scripture says, past the setting of the sun. Who won that battle? Joshua and those brave men that had never fought in their life. For 400 years they've been slaves. That's courage. Did they win that battle? Or was it Moses, that great leader that had the courage to go back to his homeland and say, God said to let these slaves go? Or was it those on the side that that could never have happened that day if they wouldn't have been the support that that leader needed? Or was it God? The answer is all. God does so much through human instruments. It's God's victory. And He points them towards that land of rest. Not rest as in kick up your feet in a recliner. It's a land of rest where there be no more bondage. Sin creates bondage in our life. Sin breaks that peace that passes understanding. God says, I can take that sin away. I can take that bondage away. God says, I can give you the peace that passes understanding. And Because of this, God says, I want you to do something. I want you to write this down because I want your people to know, to have this occasion as a memorial. But notice the second thing that Moses does. You know, after battle, it's human nature for the side that's victorious to celebrate. Armies have celebrated in various ways, but God's army and God's people tended in the Old Testament to celebrate by giving God the praise and they would build an altar. And you can just imagine Moses going around and stacking those rocks. And not only does he offer that offering to say thank you to God and to give God the praise for it, but he even names that altar. Jehovah Nissi or translated from the Hebrew, it would be the Lord is our banner. Moses didn't say Joshua, come Hey, people, look at this courageous warrior and hold his fist up in the air with Joshua. He didn't say, this man's our banner. Moses didn't say, look at me. I'm your banner. Moses said, the Lord. Look at the Lord. The Lord is our banner. As we close this morning, I want, to ask, I want to answer a question that went through my mind as I studied for this lesson, and we'll develop this in depth sometime later. What I would like to do is at least each quarter this year preach at least one sermon about this story, and each time study different angles of it. 
And sometimes we'll spend more time on this. But I want to go ahead as we kick off this year to answer this question. What exactly is the importance of a banner? There has to be an importance because battles have always had banners lifted above their troops. What is important about a banner? When the Lord is our banner, number one, it points to the fact of past victories. When the Lord is our banner, we're saying, I want to be a part of something that's already proven to be successful. Friends, you know that list of three things that you've already listed that are weaknesses in your life? I want to tell you this morning where you can go to find victory over those things. You go and you march under the Lord's banner and you can find victory from those things. Because that is a proven banner. There have been victories through nations' lives, through churches' lives, and through individuals' lives as those have marched with the Lord. The second thing that we see is that it's a valiant force. I have an idea. Let's go down to Dairy Queen and let's get a blizzard, your favorite flavor. And if somebody says, I'm going to fight you over that blizzard, let's fight till we die over it. You want to do that? You ever hear about these robberies in big cities where someone's killed for their shoes? What do we say when things like that happen? We say, you mean somebody lost their life for a, a pair of tennis shoes? Why do we say that? Because we believe with all of our heart that there are things that aren't worth dying for. Friends, the Lord's banner is worth, is worth losing everything. It's worth giving everything. Reality is, it should change everything. It's a force that rallies troops and marches them forward. What would cause someone to give their life? Jesus Christ. What would cause someone to leave addiction and live faithfully? Jesus Christ. What would cause someone that has been so cruel to individuals to start being so merciful to individuals? Jesus Christ. But a third thing that we see, that that banner becomes a guide. When soldiers are in conflict and they're separated and they're looking for what direction they're supposed to go, I'm told that oftentimes they look to see if they can see their banner flying because they know that that's the direction that they go. Friends, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a simple phrase, but listen carefully to this. That banner demands decisions. We're going to have to decide if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Someone says, well, I'll come to church. No, we're going to have to decide if we'll give all for Jesus Christ. Well, I'm kind of religious. No, we're going to have to decide. Well, I give everything, every ounce of my being to the cause of Jesus Christ. Will He always come first in my life? That's the people that march under the banner of the Lord. And the Lord has no problem saying, if you're lukewarm, I don't want you under my banner, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That banner is a guide. It demands decisions. And that valiant force is courageous. 
You show me people without a cause and I'll show you people that are already defeated. You show me people that believe in the cause of Jesus Christ and I'll show you people that are already victorious. But fourth, we see this appeal to heaven. When we line up under the Lord's banner, we are stating to ourselves and to others, this world isn't, isn't my home. My citizenship is in heaven. And we're also stating as we line up under that banner that this is just one little earnest payment, one victory at a time. You want to buy a home? You put up some earnest money. That's just a little bit for the greater that is to come. When we line up under the Lord's banner, what are we doing? We're saying that today's walk, today's present victory with Jesus Christ, even though it's just a little battle, it's a part of the greater victory that is to come on that day when we shall be resurrected and we shall hear the Lord say, Well done, now, good and faithful servants. This morning, let's leave here under the Lord's banner. Let's make 2004 the year that we honestly don't know where the chips will fall. We don't know exactly how to change our life. We don't know the sacrifices that God will demand of us. But we know this. No holding back. We're the Lord's. 100%. We are the Lord's. We'll march with Him. We'll give Him all. And we'll die with Him. Preacher, I'm afraid that'll change my life. You better believe it. And ultimately, all the changes will be for good. you've never been baptized into Jesus Christ, the Lord, our banner. We would love to see that this morning. We'd love to celebrate with you. We would love to pray with you and encourage you because we're not here to walk alone. We're here to be helped and to help. If you're a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before man that Jesus is the Son of God, won't you be baptized this morning? Maybe somewhere along the way you've, you've lost a little bit of vision of that banner and you've allowed things to come between you and God and this morning you simply want to come back and refocus. You want to repent of sins and, and pray forgiveness and make sure that your life is under the banner of our Lord. Friends, I want to ask you something if you're feeling reluctant about coming back. If you were out in battle and you were fighting the enemy as hard as you could fight and a soldier comes back up to your side and says, I'm sorry I ran for a little while, but I'm back and I'll fight with you shoulder to shoulder until we leave this place. Are you going to be happy or sad that that soldier's come back? I don't know anyone here this morning that would be pointing fingers at someone saying, why did they come back? I think we'd have a house full of people that says, we need all the help we can get. Thank you for coming back. It's not our invitation. It's the Lord's invitation, and we're just a part of His cause. And we'd love to have you back. 
If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.